Welcome to The Growth Business, a business podcast sponsored by Sapphire, home of Frictionless Digital. I'm your host, Lucy Thorpe, and I'm delighted to share my best of podcast year with you. If you look through the lens of the news agenda, it's been a terrible year, from the energy and cost of living crisis to the war in Ukraine. But in terms of business and tech in particular, there have been many opportunities as cloud came of age and we began to ask how we're using it to drive growth and ride out the recession. Well, let's start with the bad news and the findings of this year's Edelman Trust Barometer, the 22-year-old survey that asks who people actually believe in society today. Oddly enough, though, the answer seems to be business. I asked Edelman's Tim Weber what that means for business leaders today. Business has to be transparent now. It has to communicate. It can't just batten down the hatches. Out of this trust comes an expectation. And that is that people expect societal leadership as a core function of business. Nearly four-fifths, no, more than four-fifths, 81% actually, expect their CEO to be the face of change, to talk about controversial social and political issues, to take a leadership role there, whether that is uh, Black Lives Matter or maybe the war in Ukraine. So they don't want to have them uh, intervene or interfere with politics, but they want them to speak out on things like policy. And that is a huge expectation and that creates a huge pressure on, on company leaders, we have a quite uh, scary chart. If you uh, if you map where institutions are perceived uh, ethical to unethical, competent to less competent, it is business that is seen as most competent, and government is in the bottom left of this quadrant, seen to be less competent and unethical. That is that is a horrible, horrible. Uh, image when you when you look at it but I do notice I mean as a head of communications for a company and that's where you're saying that the truth is now coming from which puts a lot of pressure on my shoulders that we are being asked increasingly to talk about social matters inequality women's rights do you think everybody is feeling that pressure is everyone stepping up to the plate well uh, the war in Ukraine kind of was a litmus test for that I would say where uh, some companies have been very very bold and been very vocal while others come across like turtles that have retreated into their shells And the question is whether they are allowed to get away with it. I think while some companies will find it very difficult to take a stand, maybe because of business interests, maybe because they're worried about the welfare of their employees, say in Russia or, or Ukraine, what we definitely see is a need for companies to facilitate the flow of high quality information. Then information quality Uh, is now the most powerful trust builder across any institution, especially for business. With trust at such an all-time low, we can't be blamed for looking to understand why. And you don't have to look much further than social media. 
At the start of the year, I was lucky enough to bag some time with the godfather of content marketing, David Meerman Scott, who is deeply concerned about the way the early promise of social has taken a turn for the worse. I think that what's changed in my mind in the last several years, which has been concerning to me, is the power of the social media algorithms. And when I first started talking about content, that was pre-social media. Um, you know, I first started talking about these ideas back in 2002, and that was um, Mark Zuckerberg, I think, was probably in high school at that point. You know, social media didn't exist yet. And then when social media did start um, around 2007 or so, um, the algorithms hadn't really kicked in. And basically, and you, you probably remember this, Lucy, and others listening in may remember that in the beginning, you just saw a straight feed of your friends, um, the people you were subscribed to. And it was generally done in a reverse chronological order. In other words, the most recent post was at the top of your feed. And that if you had a lot of people that you followed, you had a lot of things in your feed and uh, they weren't yet kicking that algorithm in. They weren't yet showing you all kinds of advertising. And I think that the algorithm, the algorithms, especially the Facebook algorithm, have become destructive because what they've done with the algorithm, especially Facebook, is they've tuned it not to providing the best information to the users. However, they've turned it instead to um, how they can make the most money. And what Facebook has learned is that the way they can make the most money is to get people to be to spend more and more and more time on the platform. And the way that they get people to spend more and more time on the platform is by um, by showing content that makes them angry or showing content to them in their feeds that's polarizing, showing content in the feeds that drive people into groups where there's somebody else that they're against. And I think that the Facebook algorithm is one of the major reasons for Brexit. It's one of the major reasons for, um, uh, in my country, the, the events of January 6th, when there was an attempted coup on the U.S. government. And the Facebook algorithm is the primary reason for vaccine skepticism. And Mark Zuckerberg and people at Facebook know that, but they continue um, to breed this kind of algorithm-driven hate um, to tens of millions of people around the world who go into a, a quicksand of lies and conspiracy theories. To me, this is an important issue that we all need to face, all marketers need to face. We now know that social media tech companies have been thrown into turmoil with mass layoffs, Elon Musk moving on Twitter and the metaverse getting a kicking at the point where it should be taking off. But the dream of using social to create super connected, effective business is still alive and being championed by Steve Watt, Market Insights Director at Seismic, even though he thinks we still have a long way to go. You know, it's, it's hard to make progress on a journey if you don't have at least partial clarity on where you're going. And to me, the super connected enterprise is the aspirational goal. And I don't think that any of us are there yet. And what I mean by that is I contrast it to the ghost town. You know, you think about 
uh, I, you know, you look at a, like a, a, an image of an old, old abandoned mining town or something like that. You know, the, 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 the storefronts are still there. The signs are still there, but there's no people. It's just, it's just empty and, and, and kind of sad. And I think that's the way most companies appear on social media and on, and on let's focus on LinkedIn. Um, you know, the signs are there, the, the company page. Great. And maybe there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of followers on that company page. And there's probably ads being run. Um, you know, the, 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 the company exists, but the people aren't there. You very rarely see, you know, these companies are full of, of like, super smart, super passionate, super successful people in all sorts of in sales and in marketing and in customer support and executive leadership and everything else. But they're not there. The company is a ghost town. And so I envision the super connected enterprise is where large quantities of our people really show up and really speak up and really engage in authentic human ways and build relationships at scale and trust at scale with customers and prospects and partners and industry shapers of all sorts. And the, the way I see it is that if you take two companies that are equivalent in every other way, maybe, you know, equivalent size, you know, equivalent market position, but one of them is a ghost town and the other is on the road to becoming a super connected enterprise. I'm going to bet on the latter every time. It's not just social that brings all your prospects to the yard. And I was lucky enough to spend some time with another influential sales guru, Hugh McFarlane of Align.me, who explained to me the game-changing significance of aligning to what the buyer actually needs. If right now I'm asking you to make a decision to buy my service or my product, you would need to prefer my product or service over the alternatives. So I've got a decision and a decision can't come until preference has been formed. To prefer my service or my product, you need to know it. You can't prefer it if you don't know it. So before preferring it, there would be knowing it. And before knowing it, there's some kind of business case that you're trying to meet, some need for which you need a service at all. So if I want to sell you a particular product or service, it's to meet some kind of need. So... We're only a little way through the journey, but let me just play that forwards and then backwards again. Uh, we've got a need, then we have a solution, then it's preferred to over, uh, preferred over other solutions, and then it's bought. That's pretty logical. I don't think terribly controversial. Before the need, though, there's a problem. Why do you need that? Sure, you need X. Great. Wonderful. Let me show you my, why my X is amazing. But why do you need X? So before the need, there's a why. It might be that it's clear to you, it might be that it's implied, but there's some kind of why going on. Something's not right for which you need a solution from somebody, maybe not me, maybe somebody else, but you need a solution why. So that's the problem or the gap or the challenge or the barrier or the impediment. It's something that's not right that gives rise to the need. So we would call that the gap. And before the gap, you might be interested in the topic or the category of product or service, but you may not yet accept that there's actually a problem that you should prioritize and fix. And before that, I might wait to get you interested, but maybe I should position with you to now be a little bit selfish and contradict my point about the buyer's journey and talk about the seller for a moment. I probably want to at least be on your radar so that when the problem rears its ugly head, you at least think of me. 
So I need to position with you as someone who can solve the problem should you ever have it before we go further. And before that, you don't know who I am, you don't have the problem, and you just don't care. And so if we do that forward as a, a buyer's journey as looked at from the seller's perspective, we've got untroubled and unaware, which is you don't know who I am, you don't believe that you've got the problem, and you just don't care. If that's where you're at, and statistics suggest that 97% of your buyers are sitting at that stage. They don't know who the vendor is. They don't know that they've got a problem and they just don't care. If that's where you're at, imagine how silly it would be for me to try to argue to you why my product or service is better than somebody else's. You don't even know that you need a product or service like mine yet. And that was the genesis. That, that little insight was the genesis of the buyer's journey. It's like, she's not ready for that. What all that she's probably ready for is something to pique her interest. Good advice for content providers everywhere. Meanwhile, we've been focusing more than ever on the issues which affect our people. And in technology, that often means the minority who are women. We've written a lot about women in tech this year at Sapphire, and we've been focused on support with mentoring schemes, internal celebrations and external awards. This led to a meeting with a fantastic woman who understands the issues of women in tech all too well and has made a decision to do something about it. Abigail Allman of ERP Dynamics has founded the network Women in ERP and she told me why. Yeah, so originally um, I guess I came back into the ERP world after having my third child and I think we were just at the tail end of the pandemic. So I everything was remote and I didn't have any female colleagues that I could call on or speak to about issues I was facing as a new mum. You know, at the time I was breastfeeding two children, working full time (laughs) and, you know, running a house as well. So, you know, the day-to-day issues that we as women face, I didn't have anyone to relate that to. I mean, my colleagues are brilliant. They're all male. (laughs) So they kind of don't get it in the same way. So I created the LinkedIn group as a way to reach out to other women in the same industry, going through the same issues and and their own issues that they may need support with as well. And we just created this group. And from that, that then developed into a podcast, which is the Women in ER podcast, which I host with my co-host, Stephanie Poor. She works for IFS. And yeah, we talk about all things ERP, but also we have a general chit chat about life and and issues and, and that kind of thing. Absolutely. And, you know, women in tech, it's obviously a really big topic. I was just before you came on the call today, I was having a look around at some of the studies that people like PwC have done. And they're saying things like only 3% of women say that they would like a career in technology when they're, when they're asked about it. You know, only 3% come up with tech as a first choice and only 5% of women who are in tech are in leadership positions. I mean, these are really bad figures, aren't they? Yeah, it's awful. And I, I think it's it's largely to do with education around what tech is. I think women see tech as, oh, it's coding and it's programming and it's all this stuff that, you know, scary stuff I don't understand when really tech is real it's it's a product like anything else it can be a product and you you can be creative around that product whatever that product is and i think it's that education of allowing women to to see that and access those roles easily women are represented in all areas of tech and it's up to us to take the time to find them and celebrate them one area that's often overlooked is academia which is where i found professor of information systems at royal holloway university amini albana 
She's keen that academics and business should work together to unleash the potential of cloud technology and the benefits of automation. Absolutely. Uh, this is now the opportunity with the new uh, cloud uh, systems that it allows us to add on other uh, complementary uh, systems that we did not have the opportunity to do early on. Uh, so automation clearly is one of the key issues in implementing uh, ERP now that we need to reconsider business processes, possibly remove some of the historical uh, processes that happened for historical reasons within the organization and organizations keep doing it part of this history and legacy. We need to automate particular uh, processes that could be automated to at least remove the pressure uh, from employees' shoulders of these uh, very tedious processes. And currently, I am studying automation in uh, accounting. And people were telling me that actually it is relieving because they, they, they don't do these boring, repetitive processes. So definitely automation uh, can be considered at many different levels. So automation in terms of uh, automating uh, business processes themselves, but also possibly using AI, uh, different machine learning, computer vision, uh, conversational uh, agents. These are all opportunities and possibilities that could expand ERP even further and could create uh, benefits for the organization. Another woman in tech I finally met up with this year was Maureen Blanford, who's wonderfully forthright when it comes to her views on leadership and the failures of so many organisations to leave legacy technology behind and to grasp the new opportunities on offer to get joined up with digital. It's very tech founder ecosystem to be promoting themselves in the market with how they're killing it and they're slaying and on. And so many companies feel like, ah, you know, so many companies are doing well and we're not, we're struggling. And I just want to flip that narrative and help people understand that they are not alone. There are very few companies doing well at this. Most companies are really struggling and, and kind of treading water in place. I mean, there's certainly no magic wands, are there? And it, it's no, accepted no. that uh, some, of, some of this is hard work, but there are solutions. There are great products. There are great partners. And also it's about the right leadership, isn't it? And um, mm -hmm. this is another thing that we were going to talk about, which was the current challenges that face leadership at the moment. They're pretty big, aren't they? Yeah. When I've looked at the organizations that I've been in and talking to colleagues and, you know, reading reports in media, the thing that is truly puzzling to me is we've got smart, good-hearted people leading many companies. You know, not everybody is fabulous, but a lot of people have good hearts and they're smart. Um, so why is it that we are so stuck in, in getting this work done and so unaware of, I would think that the C-suite would be fairly unaware of the data cobbling happening with their senior leaders, very expensive senior leaders and their teams. I don't know how they can be that unaware. It's just, I think a lot about these leaders and their teams that we're forcing to spend so much time cobbling data together. What are they not doing that they could be doing strategically for the organization um, that they're not doing because they're cobbling data together? One fairly big study talked to senior leaders. I think it was like 10,000. Um, 97% of them said the, the most value that they can bring to their organization is strategic thinking. A separate study said 96% of them don't have the time for strategic thinking. 
So those those two things I feel like should be very compelling to the C-suite or boards. And how are we not getting that message through? So there you have it, our podcast year. As ever, we were preoccupied, not so much by the nuts and bolts of business, but by the way that people within business relate to one another and use the tools at their disposal to spread information, build trust and tell stories. As ever, I believe that if we can persuade, inform and entertain, then we're going a long way to doing our jobs. I hope you'll join me next year for some more great guests, starting with a look at how our emotions guide our buying decisions. Yes, even in tech. Until then, that's all for this episode of The Growth Business. Goodbye.